gospel. First John chapter four, let's stand for the reading of the word. I don't know if you do that on Sunday nights, but you're going to do it now. The reason why I do it, I don't know, is because um, the word of God is living and breathing and sharpening a two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And we stand in the presence of the word of God. The word of God we honor and the word of man we tolerate. And so you stand for the word of God and sit for the word of man. Sound good? Amen. It actually used to be, I'm going to make you stand for a while because I like to talk while you're standing. It used to be that when the teacher would instruct, he would sit and the people would stand. I think we got to go back to that. First okay. John chapter four, uh, written by the apostle John, who was called the apostle of love. He writes in verse eight, he who love or he who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Everyone say propitiation. propitiation. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that John also wrote in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Lord, I pray that you would instruct us, guide us, and direct us because your word declares and describes you as love and the embodiment of love. And if we don't know God, we don't know love. So Lord, teach us tonight, we pray through your living word. Cause us to come alive to it. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. I have been given this message uh, for, for well over 20 years. Uh, it's I've probably given this message over, last time I could, probably over 500 times. Uh, I've given this message in over 250 public schools uh, up and down California in different states uh, in front of a number of folks. What's that? Shut up. Wow. (laughs) Never used one of them newfangled things before. Um, and, and for a season, when I was invited to go into public schools to share this, I was never allowed to talk about Jesus Christ or, or the Bible. I wasn't allowed to use a Bible. So I, I said an ancient religious manuscript. And I wanted to figure out some way in the public schools to put forward Christ. And when God led me to 1 John, uh, in this, this chapter, 1 John chapter 4, especially verse 8, when it says God is love, there's a myriad of, of words that you could use if you said God is and then put a blank. You could say God is Work with me. We already know that. God is merciful, gracious, powerful, just, awesome, jealous. Okay, stop. We're done. No, okay. But but you you could fill in that blank with a number of words, but God chose in 1 John 4, 8 to use the word love, that he would describe himself as love. And then he would go on further and say, he does not know, God does not know love, for God is love. And he he commands us to understand what it is that he's depicting in relation to this concept of love. He who does not love does not know God. You have to love in in, in order to know God. He who does not love does not know God. So we better get this down. And and Christianity is the one religion that commands its adherents to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, John writes in John 15, greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. 
So, so we have to grasp this concept of love. And so I wanted to figure out a way on how to reach these, these students in, in high school without using Jesus. So I figured I would interact Jesus and God <clears throat> with this concept of love. And I would go on to describe to them what love is so they would know who God was. And it worked. We watched a transformation in Santa, uh, Santa Clara and we saw in San Jose and a number of schools touched and, and uh, pregnancy teen rates dropping and, and uh, worked with the crisis pregnancy center and a message on abstinence and on and on and on. And it was very effective and powerful. And I've shared this in, in front of, the most I've ever shared this in front of was about 6,000 people. And so this is by far and away, if, if I were to die and, and, and I had hours to live and I was able to give you one message and, and I was able to pick it, it would be this message. You could wake, from, wake me from a coma, put me in front of a pulpit, and this would be the message I'd give you. I know it was one God gave me, and I know it's one of great importance to, to uh, especially your generation. And I'll tell you why it's important. I'm going to use the word love in two sentences. I'm going to use the word love in two sentences. Because when we think of the concept of love, we, we, have, we can't fathom it. In, in our language, we want to receive love, we want to give it. But I have to tell you right now, you have no idea what love is. You're clueless. You think you do, but you don't. I'll show you. I love my wife, and I love my job. Does that word mean the same thing in both sentences? No, I hope not. <laughs> I got a great job, but, you know... How about this? How about this? Pay attention. I love my wife and I love my brother. Does it mean the same thing? Some of you are nodding yes. Some of you are going no. Some of you are going, I, you got me. Well, let me just help you. I got a great brother. He's nine years older than me. He's a great older brother. And I love him, but not like I love my wife. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? Different. Very Different. Yet we use the same word in both sentences, and we, we, we say, I love pie, and I love this church, and I love my wife, and, I, and I, we use love. It's the most misunderstood and overused word in the English language. XXOO, endless, we put hearts, all the, whatever it is, emoticons, it's the most misunderstood and overused word in the English language. We've abused it, we've obliterated it, and yet the description from God is in 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God. So if you want to know God tonight, you need to know what love is. And everyone says, oh, I know what love is. I've heard all the arrows of God, big phileo. I've gone through all the studies. No, you haven't. The concept and the idea of what God wants to impart to you this evening is one that for your generation will be transformative if you, if you apply it. And so <clears throat> we're not going to use the English language to describe love tonight. Because English language fails to depict this, this most intense concept in human understanding. Now, the Greeks were brilliant. The Greeks understood the concept of love. They had a number of words to describe love, but three of them constitute over 95% of the meaning of the word itself. And so we're going to use those three words. And interestingly enough, those three words are all found in the New Testament writings because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. This was a language of love. God wanted to depict himself as love, and so he used a language that had a deep understanding of the concept of love. They didn't just describe one word, they had many words. And the three main words that constitute 95% of the meaning are all going to be found in the New Testament scriptures themselves, and so we'll begin tonight. Actually, the word eros that we're going to begin with tonight is not technically found in its, in its format in the New Testament. It's eron, which it's, it's found in Corinthians, and yet the description of this word, if you look at it, 
I want you to put this down. There's the word arrows. We're going to begin with it. The word arrows. And I guess I press this button. Look at that. Did I press it or did you do it? Oh, you do it. I don't want to do it. There's three aspects to, to the concept of arrows. The first thing is arrows is selfish. Selfish. It's all about me. And you can put that up on the screen. Arrows is selfish. It's all about me. The other aspect of arrows is that it's only intended for objects. Only for objects, never for people. Objects only, never for people. It's only intended for objects, and it's selfish. For example, I love this car because it makes me feel good. I love this shirt because it makes me look skinny, and a lot of you are going, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's only intended for objects and how they make you feel. And, and, it's, and it's interesting. It's, now, everyone say objects only. Objects. I said everyone say objects only. Objects only. Never for people. Say never for people. This is the Greek mindset. This is the way to describe. This is apart from a biblical understanding of the word. The way they describe it is a selfish love only intended for objects, never for people. Now here's the third definition of it. And you're going to think that the, that the, the Greeks are stupid. It's intended a newborn's love for their mother. Now is the mother an object or a person? Object. Yeah, we're going to pray for you. You had a rough childhood. <clears throat> the mother's a person, right? Now, were the Greeks stupid? No, they were brilliant. Let me give you an idea. It's the love that a newborn baby has for its mother. Now, a lot of you know that, that we have, Michelle and I have five kids. Michelle and I have five kids. Our three oldest are our girls. Our two youngest are our boys. We have Molly and Kelly, 23, 22, and then Natasha's 21, and Daniel's 15, and Michael's 13. And four of our children, Michelle gave birth to, and the, our middle child, Natasha, we adopted from Russia when she was 12. We actually say that Natasha was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery. Uh, we, we got her when she was 12, and she was over 100 pounds, and it took a long time for her to be delivered to us. But of the children that Michelle gave birth to, um, Michelle gave birth to really big babies, and uh, Molly and Kelly and Daniel were all over nine pounds, big babies, short labors. A lot of women are like, I just don't like her. That's awful. <laughs> and every baby would be consecutively quicker. Um, I, I, I just remember watching, especially first, you know, Molly and then Kelly. And then by the time Daniel came along, I mean, Michelle would like sneeze and the baby would come out. It's like, wow, it's crazy. Uh, but I remember um, when, when I took the call to come here to be the pastor, uh, I was teaching at the old church over on Skyline. And, and it was a Wednesday night study and Michelle was pregnant. And uh, here we were in October and uh, her, her delivery date was any moment. And, um, and as I'm just wrapping up the message on a Wednesday night, I notice Michelle um, is, is like, you know, she's pacing back and forth. And then the assistant pastor comes and gives me a note saying she's in labor. So we have to bust it to the hospital. Now, before I tell you that story, let me back up a little bit. There had been a period of time between Daniel being born and Michael being born. So I had to go and refresh myself on learning how to help and be a birthing coach for my wife. And they do this thing called Lamaze, like the dad has, you know, any help in the birthing process. Apparently we do. Um, and so I went to the class for a refresher class and I'd been through it for the first three kids. And so I'm, by the time the fourth one comes along, I'm so bored. I don't want to be in the class. And there's another guy who's got another three kids and we're both cutting up and joking in the class and the teacher's getting irritated with us. She says, pay attention to me. You two fellas back there, listen to me. If you don't get anything out of this class, the one thing you're going to have to remember is that when your wife is pushing, she's going to turn different shades of purple and she might pass out. 
And so you need to take your fingers in the form of a candle when she's in labor and she's ready to push. And you need to make eye contact with her and say, look at me, look at me. And you have to help her with the breathing process. Hold her hand and help her to blow out that candle. (laughs) Do you understand, fellas? We're like, yeah, we got it. Because every time the kids were born and, and, you know, we get to the hospital, you know, doctor would come in, they take care of it. They call me in to cut the umbilical cord. Is my job ready? Okay, done. Wrap her up. 9.3 seconds, a new record. But, but, you know, I never really had to endeavor with Michelle because she was never really in heavy labor and I wasn't by her side in those regards. So the teacher tells me, you have to blow out the candle, you have to blow out the candle. I'm like, whatever. All right, now fast forward, it's Wednesday night. And, and my wife is pacing back and forth, holding her belly. She, she, by the way, she delivered. I'm still in the third trimester. <laughs> and as she's pacing back and forth and the note comes, I realize, oh, it's time. We got to go. So I get in the car and we're busting it over to Los Robles. And we're, you know, blazing through the lights and trying to get there. And I mean, we're busting. Michelle's going, hurry, hurry, hurry. And her mother was in town and she wanted her mother by her side because her mother always took my role and helped with the delivery, which I'm like, I'm good with that. But her mother wasn't answering the phone. I'm like, answer the phone, woman. And she wasn't answering. We get to the hospital. We get in there. They set Michelle up. We're supposed to call uh, Dr. Van Geem, who's a delivery doctor here in town. And they're saying, call, uh, Michelle says, call Dr. Van Geem. It's going to be any minute now. And I okay. So I walk out to the nurse's station. I said, uh, excuse me, uh, my wife is going to be delivering any minute now. And uh, she would like that you call Dr. Van Geem. And the nurse looks at me and goes, Mr. McCoy, just settle down. Settle down, dear. We do this for a living. I'm like, oh, you're pissing me off. <laughs> and uh, and she, she says, Mr. McCoy, we know what we're doing. You just need to calm down, and we'll come in and check your wife in just a minute, dear. So you go on back in there. I'm like, you, you, okay. <laughs> so I walk in there with my tail between my legs, and she goes, is the doctor coming? I go, um, they said to wait. And my wife is like, now, you've got to get him here. So I walk out, and I go, nurse, you've got to come in and check my wife. Oh, all right. And she's irritated. She puts her coffee down. Oh, might as well go check. She walks in there, and my wife is like, she's, she's in, and I know, because every labor, quicker. She was, so she goes to examine my wife. God is so good. And she goes to examine my wife. Right then, the water breaks. <laughs> I mean, the woman just gets... <laughs> And she's oh, and I'm like, do you need a tissue, dear? Because you know what you're doing. And she's just, oh, and she's calling, and they're bringing the lights down and changing the table, and they're getting ready for the delivery. Call Dr. Van Geem. I go, yeah, hello. Who knows now, lady? And, and they, they get, and Dr. Van Geem's saying, my wife's going, where's my mom? Where's my mom? She's not here. Where's Dr. Van Not here. Honey, you have to help me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I didn't pay attention in class. No, you need to help me. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I'm over there. I've never paid attention. I don't know what to do. And she's pushing. And I'm holding her hand. I'm just looking at her, and she's just. And ah, oh. Purple, your face is purple. I heard about this somewhere. <laughs> candle, candle, hold, look at me, look at me. And I'm, I'm holding my wife's hand, give me your hand. I'm holding, I'm going, look at me. Honey, honey, look at me. The candle, come on, concentrate. And my wife looks at me, she goes, get away from me. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
Now all three kids, Molly, Kelly, and Daniel were born over nine pounds. Michael was born over 10 pounds. This kid was hugantic. And all of the weight was in his head. He was born with the biggest, he like this until he was two. Just a big, big head. And out comes this ginormous head. My wife's gonna explode. And he's born, boom. I cut the umbilical cord, we wrap him up. <sighs> and we're both wiped out, we're so tired. Me especially, that was rough. That was overwhelming. And you don't get much sleep in a hospital. Every time you go to sleep, they come in, oh, we're just knocking on the door to wake you. Hi. <laughs> That's a hospital. So you're just, you're just cooked. You're just wiped. And it's time to discharge. Have you had a lot of rest? No. And, and we, we, we get to take our bundle of head home. And, and we strap him in the car seat. And we put him in there. We're driving home. And we're both so tired. Michelle can barely keep her eyes open. She's giving birth to this monster. And we're driving home. And, 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 and you know how kids are in a car. And Michael, he's so tired, he can't keep his head up. Just like, out. Sound asleep. We're like, yes. Yes, yes. So like a skilled surgeon, I remove him from the car seat. You go on into bed, honey. She goes in, puts her head on the pillow, out. I tiptoe into the nursery. I lay this kid down so gently. Step out. I go to the bed. I crawl in next to Michelle. Bed, glorious bed. I put my head on the pillow. And I'm out. And it's not that light sleep. It's that heavy REM sleep where you drool the ha, 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 ha. And in the midst of this luscious sleep, two o'clock in the morning, what happens? He's crying. All right, here's where the Greeks weren't stupid. Michael's selfish. He's crying at two o'clock in the morning as though he's the only human being on the face of the earth. <laughs> We're asleep. Don't care. I'm hungry. Feed me. And you're thinking, what is wrong with you, kid? Now, if Michelle walked into Michael's room and looks at him and says, Michael, it's two o'clock in the morning. We don't feed anybody at two. You go back to bed, and we'll feed you at eight with the rest of the family. What would he do? He's selfish. He doesn't care. He'd scream louder. And here's the secret. Listen, here's the secret. You think that it's a contradiction in saying, well, the mother's not an object. Well, to Michael, Michelle's not a human being. Michelle is an object for his survival. She's the milk wagon. Hook me up. And, and he doesn't care that it's two o'clock in the morning or that he has a huge head and that she hurts in places that she didn't even know she had. He doesn't care. It's all about Michael. Now, here's the secret. Pay attention. Human beings can love other human beings with this love. There's only one catch. They have to reduce them from being the pinnacle of God's creation to being that of an object. That's why we get from the word eros, the word erotic. Erotic. Pornography. We want our women to dress like objects and our men treat them as such. It reduces the value intrinsically of a human being. It's the most prolific form of love in our culture, yet it was the least form of love in the Greek mindset because it devalued human beings. 
to being that of an object. You see, you're no longer a human being, you're an object, and every object has a price. You look at that and you think, wow. And Michelle, Michael didn't care it was two o'clock in the morning. Now, the reverse of Eros is interesting. It's called agape. It's the opposite of Eros. Agape has three definitions. One is, and it's reverse. So if, if Eros is selfish, what would agape be? Selfless. And if Eros is only for objects, agape would be for people. And if Eros is the newborn's love for its mother, agape would be the mother's love for the baby. That's why this word was used in John 15, greater agape, greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. Agape is the greatest love a human being can give. For God so loved the world, agape was used. For God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gives. It's the highest form of love a human being can give. And it's selfless. It's not conditioned upon whether you're good or bad. It's not conditioned on what time of the morning it is. It does, it's not conditioned on how big of a head you have. It's not conditioned on any of that. And that's why the description in the Greek mindset, who they didn't know the Lord. They were fallen creatures. They had an understanding of natural law. But that's why the Greek said that this is the love that a mother has for the baby. Michelle didn't go into Michael's room at 2 o'clock in the morning and go, Why are you crying? Do you know what time it is? She hurt in every place imaginable. She was exhausted. She reached down and picked that little boy up and loved on him. And I'll tell you, kids like that at that age don't give anything in return. If they make a noise, it results in a mess on either end. (laughs) And she hooked him up and fed him and loved on him. That's agape. Doesn't matter if it's two o'clock in the morning. Doesn't matter if I'm hurting. It doesn't matter if I'm tired. God went up, he walked the Via Dolorosa and, 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 and he had you on his mind. He endured the shame, despising the shame for the sake of mankind. He so loved you that he died on a cross. He gave himself for you and me. His blood was shed for the remission of your sins, that the propitiation, his righteousness would be put on your account. He paid the penalty. He loved you when you were unlovable. He loved me when we were unlovable. It was two o'clock in the morning and we were making a mess of our diaper and he loved on us. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't a catch. He loved us. While we were yet sinners, we were at enmity with God. We were at war with God and he loved us. Two o'clock in the morning, we're screaming like a little baby and our, our shorts are soiled and he loved us. Like a mother loves a baby. He gave himself, every drop of blood was poured out. You take communion every Sunday night. You have to understand the significance that his body was broken, his blood was shed, every drop was poured out. And by the time they speared his side, blood and water came out because he had bled out. He gave it all. Greater love has no man than this. And to lay down his life for a friend, for God so loved the world, he gave every drop of blood poured out for the propitiation. Now that's the highest form of love a human being can give is agape. You know, I was a young kid growing up in California, in Southern California. My dad was a naval officer. My dad was away on Westpac cruises and 
military endeavors in Vietnam. And I remember we had this Volkswagen bug and my mom would, would drive around. I was the youngest of four kids by quite a span and my mom would drive me around. And I remember one time a car cut in front of us. It was a Volkswagen. We didn't have to wear seatbelts back then. And even if we did, it was like this weird, str- I couldn't even find them. They're all stuck in the seat. This car cuts in front of us. My mom puts one foot on the brake and she does this. And what she was communicating to me as a little kid is, I'm going to put myself between you and danger. I'd rather die than anything happen to you. I want to go through the window first and make sure you're safe. That's what she communicates to me as a little kid. I'm putting myself between you and danger. I love you more than I love myself. Greater love. And that's, that's why she, she, she did this. And, and it's the highest form of love a human being can give. Described by a mother. Now, that's the highest form of love you can give. But this is where you need to pay attention and understand what love is so that you'll know who God is. This is vital. This is where we miss it. There's a third form of love that we have mistakenly described as brotherly love. We've heard of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The Greeks didn't describe it as brotherly love. Brotherly love. Phileo is deeper than that. Phileo is a mutual love. A mutual love, similar to Philippians chapter 2. Christ, though being God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant unto death, even death on a cross. Having the same love, being of like mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. It's this mutual love, this like-mindedness. Phileo is not a brotherly love. Phileo is defined as, as a mutual love. It's only intended for human beings, not for baby fur seals or spotted owls. It's intended for people. You may love your dog and you may think your dog is human. And I got a dog. I really believe if dogs are going to heaven, mine will be there. My dog has a gift of hospitality. My dog, I believe, is a Christian. And some of you are thinking theologically that I'm going to hell. And I understand that. But I love my dog. He was a gift. He found us. We didn't find him. He was at the Kern River. He jumped in our car. He says, I'm picking you. Let's go home. We brought him home. And he's been the coolest dog since. If you've never met Buddy, you haven't lived. And I love Buddy. But not like I love my wife. Not like I love my kids. I had another dog named Bear. Bear was amazing. Bear was the coolest dog. I got him for my wife on her birthday. When we were newly married, we had no kids yet. Bear was the guy. Such a cool dog. And one day we noticed his hips look funky. We took him into the vet, and the vet said he has double hip dysplasia, and he's going to need surgery, and he's going to need titanium hips, and, he's, and it's going to cost him. I'm looking at the figures, and they're putting it up on the screen. I'm like, he doesn't need titanium hips. He needs a good night shot is what he needs. <laughs> Some of you are angry at that. I was thinking my wife's pregnant. We're going to have a child. I don't have money for that. I love bear, but not like the baby. Let's see, baby or bear? So you go, well, you need to take out a note and a loan, and you need to... No, I don't. And that's probably where we're different. And what I'm saying is the dog loves you, but the dog is, is a creature where we talk about the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit, soma, psyche, and pneuma. The dog itself is obedient to, to its nature. And you can train that dog to do anything, and then you can switch that dog's allegiance. I imagine when we found Buddy at the Kern River, he was as sweet to the family that had him as he is to ours. You can retrain him. And, and, and God isn't intending these types of love that you have for an animal. God intends us to be in community and love one another. You know why we have such a love for animals in our culture? Because our culture is dying. When we elevate pets in Washington, D.C., the, the parks in Washington, D.C. no longer allow children because they're only for pets. What is wrong with us? 
We spend more money on our pets than we do our children. And, and God is, is showing us that this is intended for human beings, this mutual love. I'll explain that in a moment as we go through this, but it's, it's a mutual love only intended for humans. And, and as agape is the highest form of love a human being can give, phileo is the highest form of love a human being will experience. You're going to want to experience this in your lifetime. Some of you never will. Some of you never will because, quite frankly, you're selfish. People are objects to you. You're a player. You go through people like they're just clothes that you change. You're empty inside. It's fascinating to me that pornography in its debased form takes on a form of anger, humiliation. Have you noticed that? It's always humiliation. It's always anger. Because you have two people engaged in an activity that's intended for intimacy, an expression of intimacy, and both of these people aren't connected spiritually or emotionally. And so they're angry. They're just objects using one another. And so it takes on a debased form because you have two people engaged in anything but intimacy and they're angry. I don't even remember your name. And we're drawn to it because it's so powerful. And the Eros is a powerful thing because we look at people as objects. And, and at times, I remember when I first saw my wife, I mean, she, she I, I, boo, her, her. And it's, it's, Eros is attractive. It draws us. I mean, it's that initial, wow, you are stunning. You're finer than a new set of snow tires. I think you're hot. But that doesn't hold a marriage together. It just doesn't hold a marriage together. And so, so this mutual love is supposed to be two lives experiencing this. And, and the idea is it's the highest form of love a human being will experience. And I said, some of you will never achieve this, and here's why. There's a formula to achieve it. I'll teach you the formula, but it's your job to apply it. The formula is A plus A equals phileo. A is agape. Plus agape equals phileo. The Bible says, unless a man loses his life, he won't gain it. A man will leave his mother and father, be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There'll be a new creature in Christ. You lay your life down, and in losing your life, you gain a whole new one. Well, let me address this issue. My sister, who's a lesbian, and we've had this conversation, I shared with her one time. I said, you know, Gretchen, if I have to walk through this process, I have to tell you one of the areas that I, I struggle with homosexuality about, and this is intense to me, is as I personally think it's the highest form of self-love. It's narcissism and it's at its peak. And what do you mean narcissism? I said, well, let me help you. I love Michelle and I have no clue about this woman. She uses way more words than necessary. She's way too emotional, connects it to every box in her brain. Little things cause her to cry. I don't get it. I just don't get it. She has this way with the kids that I can't fathom. Kids will come to me. Our kids, when they were little, they come, look, Daddy, look what I drew. I'm like, that is stupid. <laughs> and they go find your mother, and they bring this drawing. Look, Mommy. And she, oh, this is so, look how you use the colors. We have to have the kid examined. This is bad. This is, something's wrong with our children. Michelle's like, oh, this is so, this is so great. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're actually sincere about that. You're saying it's great. Can't you see it? No, no, I don't see anything remotely resembling brilliance. I'm concerned. She's completely different than me. 
What do you think? What do you think? Does this, does this dress make me look fat? What do you do? I don't even know how to answer that. No, 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 no. Are you saying I was? No, no, I wasn't even saying any. I knew it was a trick. Why do you do that? Why do you do that to me? She's totally different. I don't understand her. She's wired differently, physically, emotionally. And that's a generalization in some of your, but I'm just saying we are completely opposite. I'll, I'll, I'll describe something and she'll be on a whole different tangent. I go, were you listening? And she'll look at me, well, were you listening? I was, I, clarity was what I shared. You'd ask anyone. We'll be in a room with men, and we'll have, I'll have had a haircut, and a guy will go, Ugh, and I'll go, Ugh, and we know what it means. Like, nice haircut, thank you. And a whim, Michelle, oh, it, the hair, the, the bob cut matches your dress, and I just love how it highlights your shoes, and it's just so wonderful, and everything just seems to... <laughs> just different, very different, yes? Very different. God intended it that way. And I told my sister, I said, for me to love a man, it would be easy because everything I love about myself would be what I'd love. I, I get a guy. I get it. I know how they think. I know how they act. There's no selflessness in that endeavor. It's just an expression of what I love about myself is what I love about the man. It's the highest form of narcissism. I said, Gretchen, for you to love a woman is the same thing. You understand a woman. There's no dying necessary. There's a little but nothing similar to what God intends in marriage. For me to love Michelle, I have got to die. You have no idea. Michelle, if she were here, she'd go, oh, you have no idea. You have no idea. It's, it's a man loses his life, and in losing it, he gains it. And let me explain to you this idea of, of this phileo love. Agape, greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. It's the ultimate, I got your back, love. I'll cover you, I'll die for you. For God so loved you, he died for you. He died on the cross. Could you imagine him dying on the cross having been beaten, whipped with a cat of nine tails? His back was turned into hamburger meat. They pulled his beard out of his face. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a bag over his head, tied his hands behind his back, and they sucker punched him, and they said, prophesy who hit you. They pierced his hands. They pierced his feet. Blood poured out. They speared his side. They mocked him. They spit upon him. They gambled for his clothing. He hung there naked. And while he's hanging there and the two thieves are mocking him and everyone else is sneering at him like the dogs of Bashan, Psalm 22, he still died. And I have news for you, he's God. Nails don't hold God to a cross. He's God. Nails don't hold God, love did. Love knew we needed a savior. And he allowed every drop of blood that was so efficacious and powerful to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness that the sinless lamb of God was slain for the remission of your sins and mine. His righteousness of propitiation was put on your account and mine. And he died there and he hung there in love. He was God. In absolute, absolute humility, he laid his life down. He so loved you, he laid his life down. He laid his life down. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Wait for a minute, I'll explain phileo. He laid his life down, he gave you his life. He said, you're a sinner. 
And I've come to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and put my righteousness on your account, a propitiation, an exchange, your sin for my righteousness. A free gift, but here's the deal with a gift. It only works if you receive it. Week in and week out, pastors from pulpits continue to put forward the gospel, which means good news, that God wants to deliver you from your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and this gift of salvation is put forward to you as Christ hung on the cross, and you look at it and you go, forget it! I want to live my life on my terms, and I don't need a savior. Well, phileo's not for you. You're selfish. God agaped you, but you eros. You reject it. You deny it. You see, the only way for Phileo to be understood is as God lays down his life, you go, wait, God, you've laid your life down for me? Yes. While I was a sinner, you died for me. Do you know what I've done? I know everything you've done. I'm God. No things, all things are laid bare before my eyes. I, I even know what you think in secret and what you do in the dark. Really? Yes. Oh. And you still love me? You bet I do. I love you this much. God, you give me your life? I do. Then God, yes. I give you my life. I die to myself. And in dying, you live. It's a new life in Christ, and phileo love becomes yours, an experience beyond measure. Let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. You see, the amazing thing in a marriage is I lay my life down to understand my wife. She lays her life down to understand me. And in losing our life, we gain a whole new life. We've been married 25 years come April. And I got news for you. We can be in a crowded room like this on Michelle's birthday. She could be opening up a gift on her birthday. And I can tell by the movement of her eye and none of you in the room will have a clue. I know whether she loves a gift or hates it. I can start a sentence and she can finish it. I close my eyes and she falls asleep. The two have become one flesh. It's a mutual love. 25 years we've come entwined and we love each other. There's a connection. She knows my deepest secret. She knows all these things. I'm protected in her love. I'm covered in her grace. I'm covered in her mercy. Because together as the two of us see Christ, our relationship becomes closer. Because as we understand, he laid his life down for us and we lay our life down for him. And we serve one another as Christ has served us. We become intimate. And then God gives us this expression of intimacy, which is a sexual act where we connect emotionally and physically and spiritually. For many of you engaged in, in the act of, of sex, you, you, you're not firing on all three cylinders. To you, it's just an act. To you, it's arrows. To you, it's just a, a, an action. And it's empty. There's a difference between sex and love. Sex is what can I get? Love is what can I give? And God gives us this connection to connect on all three levels. Emotionally, spiritually, and, intim- and, and, and physically. It's a great gift. The world doesn't understand that. We run after the arrows. We run after the erotic. We run after the pornea. Now, I, I share all this, these, these three types of love, and I'll close with two illustrations, and I'll be finished in the remaining time. And these two illustrations will help you better understand it. Uh, the, the first relationship... Uh, or the first illustration I want to share with you is a friend of mine. His name's Jeff. And Jeff and I used to work together 
in uh, San Jose, California. We'd go in and speak in public schools. We'd talk on abstinence, uh, uh, no sex before marriage. And, and Jeff was an amazing guy. He was a pastor of a church in, in San Jose. And uh, he was married to Heidi. And Heidi was a beautiful woman. They had, uh, I think at the time, three kids. I think now they have six. And uh, I remember hearing his testimony. And I, was, I was blown away by it. At 13 years of age, uh, he was going to a public high school in Southern California. Public high school, Southern California. He was a captain of the football team. He's he, amazingly handsome. I mean, this guy, he, had, he was chiseled. He had muscles in places where I don't have places. Not a drop of acne on his face. When I was in high school, I was like the goalie for the dart team. I was like, you know, just face was just a mess. It was rough. But not Jeff. Jeff was like, dun, 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 dun. And, uh, and, and he, he was a football player, and he was BMOC on campus. And at 13 years of age, he, he grew up in the church, and he heard a pastor talking about abstinence, and he, he understood this concept of love and saving himself for his future wife. And, you know, we talk about safe sex, right? Safe sex. Safe, Webster's Dictionary, means free from harm or danger. Free from harm or danger means 0% chance. Just read the back of a condom box anytime you want. Will help with many, but not all. Some, but not all. That's not safe. And then the question for you, they'll never invent a condom that will protect your heart. Good word. Don't forget that. This is an issue that you have with the Lord. And then intimacy becomes distant because our lives are struggling. And, and here at 13 years of age, he heard this story and, and he committed himself to remain a virgin until marriage. At 13, 13. Now I want to tell you something What's fascinating about that. Heidi grew up in Iowa in a public school. She'd made the same commitment around 12 years of age. And uh, they met, and actually Heidi had been engaged and the engagement broke off. And, but they, they met and married. And um, I think they were 26 years of age when they married. And, and the very first time that Jeff ever kissed a woman romantically and the very first time Heidi ever kissed a man romantically was at the altar when they said, I do, in front of God and the pastor and all the witnesses and they kissed. That was the first time they ever kissed another person the opposite sex romantically. And their very first sexual experience is when Jeff carried Heidi over the honeymoon threshold in the honeymoon suite. And I'll tell you, that night they experienced phileo love. I'm just saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> And you know what? They had no worries about any sexually transmitted diseases. They had no worries about pregnancy. They had no worries about any of that because they were committed to one another and establishing a family and procreating and doing what God had declared them to do. And this was their life. And they had served one another. And they both kept themselves free from harm or danger, both physically and emotionally, for their future spouse. They had laid their life down. Greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. Let me explain to you, especially the guys. At 13 years of age until the age of 26, Jeff commits himself to virginity, abstinence until marriage. Now from the age of 13 to 26, I want to tell you what he gave up, how he denied himself to pick up his cross and follow God. I want to tell you what he gave up. A man's sexual drive peaks at the age of 18 to 21. Peaks. 
And they say the four most intense drive of a male adolescent is first for air. You can go about three minutes without air. Second is for water, three days without water. Third is for food, about 40 days without food. And the fourth most intense drive of a male adolescent is his sex drive. They say a male adolescent has a sexual thought every 15 to 18 seconds, whether major or minor. I got to go to history class. Oh, you know, thinking of just, something's happening. And, 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 and the, the poor fella, you know, he's going to class and, and the girls are spray painting their clothes on and, and, and he's walking, he's just seeing these things. He's trying to be a concrete inspector and just looking down and they're high and he's like, he's walking to class and the songs are, and he's just trying to concentrate and the videos are flashing and all the billboards and television and everything, sex, sex, sex. And this poor guy's like, ah! And this is just, that's just, that's all I can think about. And then God comes along and says, wait, just wait, just wait. And I got to tell you, 13, you're like, what? Wait, do you understand? You created me this way. I don't even want to eat. It's not even the fourth. It's like the third most. I'll hold my breath. I won't even drink water. I am. All right, let's do this. You know, like, it's just intense. Intense. Now in your generation, everything is just inundated with pornography. They're saying kids at the age of the fourth grade have been exposed to, you know, very vivid pornography. You guys are the generation. You've seen it. You've seen it. You've seen it. Your minds are tainted. And you're just, this is all you can concentrate on. And then God says, wait. And I remember one time I was in a a public school class. And I'm talking about Jeff. I said, this guy waited from the age of 13 to 26 before he had his first sexual experience. I'm talking about the four most intense drives of a male adolescent. This guy in the front row, what's your name? Ben. 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 His name is Ben. Thanks, Ben. So in the front row, let's say it's Ben. Ben goes, hey, I got a question for you. And he's like the really cute guy. And all the girls, he's so cute. And ben raises his hand, hey, I got a question. And, oh, my God, Ben's talking. He's just he's talking. And I go, yeah, Ben. He goes, I, I got a question for you. I'm like, yeah, okay, Ben, what is it? He goes, uh, didn't you say that the fourth most intense drive of male adolescence is sex drive? I said, yeah. And our sex drive peaks from 18 to 20. Yeah. Well, here's my question. Why would God make me this way and say, wait, is he cruel or something? Quite frankly, I looked at him. I didn't have an answer because I'm like, I want to go. Yeah, he's just vicious. I mean, <laughs> tell me about it, pal. Boom. Give me a hit bump. <laughs> and he goes, give me one good reason why I should wait until I'm married before I have sex. I mean, don't you test drive a car before you buy it? And I looked at him and go, yeah, you do test drive a car before you buy it. And all the girls go, he's so cute. I'd like to be test driven. <laughs> Listen, I've been in schools. It's brutal. Some of you are going, that's over the line. Okay. And I said, yes, yes, you do test drive a car before you buy it. But if I'm not mistaken, isn't a car an object? And all the girls look up and they go, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. I'm no object. And to to his credit, the kid goes, 
yeah, you're right. A woman's not an object. But he said, why would God make me like this and say, wait, now I'm not allowed to invoke God. He did. He said, why would God make me like this and say, wait, is he cruel or something? And the Bible says, if any man lacks wisdom, all he need but do is ask of God. God will give freely to him who asks. So I'm thinking, God, you know, I don't have an answer here for this kid. And quite frankly, I think you're a bit cruel. And uh, I, I was wondering maybe if you're not too busy, could you help me with this? Because I don't know how to answer him. And I really did. I prayed a prayer. It was not jokingly like that. I really did pray a prayer. I said, God, I don't know how to answer him. And it's just in the quietness of my own heart. And God says, tell him about Jeff. I'm like, uh, do you have a better answer than that? I'm not really sure where you're going with this right now. Tell him about Jeff. I said, uh, I'll give you a good reason why you should wait until you're married before you have sex. Uh, Jeff. He's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why. I'm still waiting for the... No, no, God says, tell him about Jeff. And, I, and it, it occurs to me, I go, yeah, Jeff. Jeff. Jeff's my friend. From the age of 13 to 26, he denied himself of the fourth most intense drive he possesses as a male to keep himself safe, both physically and emotionally, from any harm or danger, to give the entirety of his life to his wife. I said, and I want to tell you something about Jeff. God's in the business of making men. And men come with responsibility. The bar mitzvah goes from 13 to maturity, from a child to an adult. And God says, now you're responsible for the decisions in your life, and you are going to learn how to raise a family. You're going to learn how to provide for a family. You're going to learn how to love your wife. And from the age of 13 to 26, you'll deny yourself to equip yourself because you're going to learn how to deny yourself in the, to serve other people. I said, Jeff, from the age of 13 to 26, denied himself. You can't do without air. You can't do without water. You can't do without food. But contrary to popular belief, you can do without sex. And God teaches you how to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him to keep yourself safe, both physically and emotionally, for your future spouse. And I said, I said, do you have a good dad? And the kid looks at me and he goes, what do you mean? I said, do you have a good dad? He goes, no, my dad is a jerk. I said, is he a good husband? No, he's not. And I said, let me tell you about Jeff. I know him. I was at his house watching a Raiders football game. He's a Raiders fan. I was a Charger fan. Raiders football game. The score was tied, fourth quarter. The Raiders were in the 10-yard line getting ready to score. Less than a minute remaining on the clock. We were glued to the television set watching this thing. His wife comes through the door with groceries and kids hanging on her legs. She comes through, and Jeff turned off the TV to go help her in with the groceries. I'm like, dude, the football game is on. I remember sitting at a dinner table at his house. His two-year-old came in with a diaper so filled with poo, it was leaking from every crevice. This kid, he, when he walked into the room, it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. Plants were wilting, birds were falling out of the sky. The kid's like... And everyone's like... And if that was my kid, the kid comes running up to Jeff. It was me. I'd go, hey, go find your mother. He comes in. Jeff picks him up. Hey, buddy, let's go change that diaper. We were at the dinner table. Dinner was over. His wife was still talking. He started to put the dishes away. I mean, you're screwing up the curve, man. What are you doing? 
From the age of 13 to 26, he learned how to serve and deny himself for the sake of another human being. That man knows how to love. I turned to that kid. I said, wouldn't you have liked to have had a dad like Jeff? And do you wish your mom could have had a husband like Jeff? And he said, yes. I said, you can't pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. Quit whining and start doing what God calls you to do. Your generation can change it. You can always make excuses why life is sucky. But you can change it. You can choose today what kind of a parent you're going to be. You can learn how to deny yourself. You can learn how to value other human beings. And the reason, and this is my last illustration, the reason why I looked at that kid is I said, you would have liked to have had a father like Jeff, and you wish your mom had had a husband like Jeff. I said, I know what you mean, because in my family, my dad was a naval officer, and early on, we weren't raised in a Christian home. My dad was a good man, but he struggled. He committed adultery, multiple occasions. He was a military officer. My mom, to deal with the pain, drank like a fish. She was an alcoholic. One of the reasons why we were driving and she put her foot on the brake and did this is because she was drunk when she was driving. I thought everyone smelled like alcohol when they drove. Things are caught, not taught. And I learned from my dad. I remember this was my sex talk with my dad. Are you getting any? I'm like, getting any what? What are we, what are we talking about? Where, where are we going with this? I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. I'm sweating. I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. I do, but I really don't want to know, I think, is what I'm saying. I grew up with this idea that women were objects for your pleasure. My very first job at 16 years of age was a lifeguard on the beach in Coronado, California. I know it's hard to believe I was a lifeguard. I look more like a buoy now, but I was a lifeguard. <laughs> And I remember as, as I was lifeguarding on the beach, we, we would work all week in, in, in Mexico. The drinking age was nothing. We'd go down to Tijuana and we'd party. We were nine miles from the Mexican border. And we'd meet girls on the beach and we'd, we'd go party with them. I remember I met this one girl. She would spend half the summer, she was from Glendale. She'd spend half the summer in Coronado and the other half of the summer in Italy. She was, her parents were Italian, from Italy. And I remember I met her and we started going out and you know, she wouldn't go down to Mexico with me, but we, we started dating through the summer and I kept pushing her to, to sleep with her. And, and she'd say, well, I'm, I'm saving myself. I'm like, for who? For the man that loves me. I'm like, and I wouldn't raise a Christian home. So what do you think I said? I mean, how do you want to hear it? I love you. I mean, how do you want me to say it? Just, if that's all I got to say to get the object I want, I'm in. And ladies, here's the deal. Here's the line. Here's the line right here. You cross that line, and by that lie, gone will be the long phone calls and the walks together. Everything will reduce to its least common denominator and all be about sex. That's what happened in this relationship. And sure enough, I said what she wanted to hear, and we did what I wanted to do. And the relationship resulted the least common denominator. And she turned to me and she says, why does everything have to be about sex? I go, look, I don't need this. I'm a lifeguard. Again, I know I look like a buoy. No, just work with me. Close your eyes. <laughs> I, I don't need this hassle. There's a cornucopia of women. And so we broke up and she went off to Italy and I went back to being a jerk. And it was that summer of self-indulgence and selfishness that the Lord brought me to the end of myself. And there was someone who loved me enough to call me out. 
and said, you're one of the most selfish human beings I've ever met. You don't understand love. And you certainly don't know God. And they shared with me what you're hearing tonight. And at that moment, I said, God, will you forgive me? Will you teach me how to love? He came into my life and he changed me. Instead of using people, he called me to love them. I'm in the ministry because God changed my heart. I made a commitment to a second virginity, almost kept it. There's another story involved in that, I'll tell you later. But I tried. And I remember when Michelle and I met, and uh, she had gone through a struggle in her own life. And we met, and we were both Christians, and we married April 21st, 1990. And I remember when three months into our marriage, she comes to me with this EPT stick. Now, I want to back it up a little bit. The girl I'd met on the beach, the Italian girl that I'd met on the beach, she ended up calling me from Italy. This is before Michelle and I were engaged. And this girl calls me from Italy and she says, I'm pregnant. I'm like, well, it's not my child. And she goes, it has to be. I haven't been with anyone else. I said, well, then we'll deal with it when you get back. So I set up an appointment at the abortion clinic and I'd save some money and savings bonds I got from my grandmother. See, I, I wanted to keep it a secret because <clears throat> if her father found out he was just a big, big Italian guy with, like I said, with muscles in places where I don't have places. And when her father was done killing me, my dad would resurrect me and he'd kill me. I didn't want anyone to know. I remember one of the last conversations we ever had, we're sitting in the room and I, I said, listen, I took care of it. We have an appointment Friday at the abortion clinic. And she says, I'm not pregnant. I have my period. I said, okay. I said, good. Oh, I guess I'll see you later. She says, no, you won't. You're a jerk. I said, you know what? So are you. I left. And when God changed my heart and I met Michelle, there was a total change. And I remember when Michelle came to me three months into the marriage with an EPT stick, a pregnancy stick, and she goes, look, I'm pregnant. It wasn't a a burden anymore. It wasn't like I want to get rid of this baby. I couldn't. I'm like, we're going to have a baby? I hope it's as beautiful as you. If it's a girl and if it's a boy, I hope it's as beautiful as you because I'm ugly. And, and, and we were so excited. I remember when we went to the Dr. Avances for the trimester checkup and they're moving the ultrasound device on her stomach to try to find out the sex of the baby. I'm holding Michelle's hand. We're like elated. We're like, we have a name picked up for a boy, name picked up for a girl. And Dr. Avance, a really compassionate Christian woman, I'm looking at her, Dr. Avance, come on, boy or girl, boy or girl, what do we got here? Come on. And Dr. Avance looks at me and, 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 and she's got tears welled up in her eyes. And she looks at me and she looks down at Michelle and gravity takes the tears and they're flowing down her face. And she says, Michelle, Rob, I'm sorry, but your baby's died. And Michelle squeezed my hand so tight. And we went in for a DNC. And they called it dilatant cuterage. It's the same procedure as an abortion, but in this case, our baby was already dead. And in this routine procedure that any 15-year-old girl in California can receive without parental notification... Routine. Can't give you an Advil, but by golly, we can give you a DNC. With this routine procedure, Dr. Avance nicked my wife. She began to hemorrhage during the procedure. She was bleeding out. And I remember they rushed her uh, from the room to ICU. And I was in the waiting room, and the gurney goes by. And the doctors had masks on their face, but I could tell by their eyes that something was horribly wrong. And Michelle was so ashen gray, you couldn't tell where her face ended and her lips began. And she went by and I realized something was awful. 
I remember they're, they're rushing her down. And I sat down in the waiting room and I just remember just overwhelmed, just saying, God, I, I can't live without this woman. Lord, I love her more than I love myself. Please, God, don't take her. Please, God, don't take her. And they, they stabilized my wife. They stopped the bleeding. And she was so anemic. And they let me go into the room to see her, and I'll never forget. I went into the room, and I came around the corner of the, the curtain, and there she was, and her hair was thrashed. And her lips were cracked from dehydration, and her eyes were rolled back in her head, and her face was so ashen gray, like I said, you couldn't tell where her face ended. Her lips began. She looked just like a corpse. And I remember grabbing her hand and holding it. It was cold. And I just remember telling her how much I loved her. I just said, honey, I don't want to go through life without you. And I want to tell you ladies something. Michelle would have never made it on the cover of any of those glamour magazines you read or the websites you look at. But she's the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And I remember in the midst of that, God asked me a question. It was so profound to me, and I'm almost finished. God asked me a real simple question in the quietness of my heart. He said, what's the difference, Rob? I remember holding Michelle's hand going, God, what are you talking about? He said, what's the difference? I said, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, Rob, what's the difference between the child that you wanted to get rid of with the Italian girl and the baby that you just lost? I, I said, well, Lord, that baby was an object of inconvenience and I get rid of it to protect myself from being beat up by the big Italian guy. That's that baby. It was an object of inconvenience. But Lord, this baby, I see it. I give him my life away. And I remember thinking to myself, as painful as this day was when I lost my baby and I almost lost my wife, I never felt more loved and more human in all my life. And I said earlier, sex is what can I get? Love is what can I give? And I realized at that moment that love is selfless. And I wanted to be connected to my wife and love her and lay my life down for her. Finally is this. Couples come into my office for marriage counseling. Sorry, Ben, I'm gonna pick on you again. But as they come in, they sit down and they make, they make this distance look like miles. And their marriage is struggling. And uh, I look at the wife and I say, what, what, what seems to be the problem? And the wife goes, oh, he doesn't appreciate me. He treats me like an object and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I go, okay. I look at the husband. I go, what's the problem? The husband goes, man, I'm sick of it. I work my tail off and she says I treat her like an object and I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. And I turn to the wife and I say, when did you give your per husband permission to treat you this way? To treat you like an object? And she looks at me and she goes, never. I never gave him permission to treat me this way, never. I go, okay. And I look at the husband. I go, did you guys sleep together before you're married? And he goes, what business is that of yours? I go, just answer the question. He goes, yeah, so what? And I look at the wife and I say, that's when you gave him permission to treat you this way, when you said you weren't worth waiting for.
It's at that moment where the husband apologizes and the wife does, and they begin treating each other like human beings and not objects. He who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. You've been given a gift. Tonight you get it, and you have a generation to reach. I'm 50. I'm on the back half. You've got lives to touch. The world will know you're Christians by your love. Apply it, live it, and change the world. God bless you guys. I'm finished.